do want to welcome you. This is the Lord's Supper service. We are a forgetful people, are we not? When was the last time that you heard something either horribly bad or wonderfully good and the news faded with time? Um, it doesn't matter how long, hours, days, weeks, or months, or even years, when something's very important and it comes to us in the form of news, it seems like it'll never go away, the feeling of exhilaration or the feeling of horror. Um, like, I can, imag- I, can, I can remember the accident um, being reported over email and over a phone call. I was in a staff meeting whenever I got called about Kathy's accident. And I remember things like, when I was in college as a freshman and my dad called me and woke me up of the... Of the um, Attacks on the World Trade Center in 2001, and even you know, when I was younger, the attacks on the Oklahoma City uh, government building, and then the tsunamis in the Indian Ocean more recently, and the earthquakes. So there's big catastrophic things, there's more personally involved things, but over time, the catastrophic nature and the impact on our hearts, the, the tearing of the fabric and the shakening of our uh, beliefs, uh, fades over time, unless we are intentional to reconsider it and, and think through it. Again, it doesn't matter the source, it doesn't matter if it's human or natural in origin. When we hear them, it does tear into us, and, 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 but it can fade after time. Maybe it's a self-sustaining mechanism of our brains, or maybe it's an apathy toward uh, suffering, I'm not sure. But regardless, if we don't think about it and re- remember it on purpose, it can fade from our memory. In a similar way, good things This happens to good things as well. Maybe it's a long-awaited conception after trying and trying and trying to bear children, or uh, like my wife and I, finally seeing the process of adoption move forward with a real name and a real face. We found out in June that we're going to adopt a little boy named Nicholas from Uganda. And uh, when he first started, you know, we first finally made the decision, we're just exhilarated with excitement. And then I remember uh, really wanting to see more than just that one picture one picture of him, he looked like he got caught off guard and he was a little scared of what was going on. And we really wanted to see more of his development. He's three years old. We wanted to see a little bit of passion, a little bit of his attitude and personality. Um, finally, we got an email. It had six or seven or eight pictures. And I remember every double click, an exhilarating flow, a wave of excitement would come over my wife and I and even tears. And we would uh, just be overwhelmed with uh, a flood of three years of development that we missed. And so, um, though, our, though our, our, our passion, our excitement has, has been pretty steadfast, it still takes intentional remembering to, to feel the impact and the reality of what's about to happen, Lord willing, in September when He becomes ours and we become His. I'm not talking about tonight. I'm not talking about just emotion for emotion's sake. What I'm talking about is dwelling upon the reality and truth of news so that it does shake us deep down in our souls. The kind of spirit and truth, even worship, that comes that Jesus promised the woman at the well. How much more true is this of the basic understanding that we should have of our own sinfulness and God's grace to save us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? When was the last time you remembered on purpose being keenly aware of the wretchedness of your own sin, the darkness and evil nature of the rebellion that you and I are a part of to remove God from his throne and put ourselves on that throne or to worship other imaginary gods like our comforts and our control over life, our safety from danger. And like I said, even worse, ourselves. 
When was the last time you really were aware of the lingering presence of this sinful nature that seeks to undermine what the Spirit's doing in your life to sanctify you according to the gospel? When was the last time you meditated on the immense sacrifice God made for you and His overwhelming love and free favor that He's offered to put upon you and He has put upon you because of the obedience and death and resurrection of Jesus? Our text tonight, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul commands us, and this will be a familiar text for you if you've come to the Lord's Supper here very many times. Paul's speaking about the Lord's Supper. He's speaking to the Corinthians here, a church that does not have it all together. Not that any church really does have it all together, but they especially at this time did not have it all together. It says in verse 23 of chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So apparently, some of the folks in the Corinthian church had forgotten what they were there for. Uh, maybe the services in general, but the specific Lord's Supper, they're called to remember Jesus' body broken and blood shed. We know this because of verse 20 and 22, before that passage I just read. Verse 20 says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not, Paul says. So again, the Corinthian church's general gatherings, and and specifically here the Lord's Suppers, uh, had become an opportunity not for recollection and remembrance of God's favor upon them through Jesus' death, as Jesus himself commanded, Paul recalled, but rather it had become an opportunity to show off wealth, to show no favor toward one another, even to get drunk on the wine being served to remember Christ's blood. There were, no doubt, a host of other messes Paul's trying to deal with in the book of Corinthians, first and second. And I'm sure we'll find out much more about those this Sunday when Carlos preaches through them. But it's clear in this text that Paul was appalled at the level of disregard for the purposes of God that, that were supposed to be represented at the Lord's Supper table, and remembered through the elements. Now, when when, when was the last time we as a church, or you saw here at the church, someone using the Lord's Supper or service to blatantly, like the Corinthian church, have a social snobbery fest, uh, drawing lines between the haves and the have-nots? I've been here around six years, and I guess that's not long compared to some, but I haven't seen anything like that. In fact, I feel like I've seen the opposite. We sing together. We love one another. We dine together, some of us before and all of us after, in the service to remember Christ's body and blood. 
Yet month in and month out, Ryan is faithful and others who preach here to draw our attention to this very text, especially verse, verse 28 where it says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. This has helped me personally. This monthly reminder has helped me personally, and I'm sure it has you too, to understand that this self-examination is not just merely did I sin in the last month between the time I had Lord's Supper last time and this time. That's too petty. Or even worse, have I had a pretty good month? What am I batting on my quiet times this month or my times with the Lord or my prayer or my reading my Bible? How many times have I not snapped at my children or wife? Have I earned God's love this month in any way by my behavior? No, this is not the self-examination Paul is encouraging here. It's deeper than that. Rather, our self-examination should sound more like this. Do I find myself once again in need of a Savior? Do I still find myself lacking in righteousness? And in and of myself, unrighteous according to God's law? Do I still find myself falling short of God's self-glorifying purposes for my life? And if so, then are we realizing that we are still in need of God's mercy through Jesus' work on the cross? We've got to remember here, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin Because we're sinners. It's who we are. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. And we've got to take time to remember who we are and remember what God has done for us. So in light of Paul's challenge in 1 Corinthians 11, and and, and a reminder of that from Ryan each month, I want to go through a few examples of of other writings of Paul that he wrote, which help us to do this self-examination in a more colorful or maybe more accurate way way than we're used to just sitting and thinking about ourselves and coming up with our own words. I know that whenever I pray, it's always good to have the Bible open because it helps you get a little more articulate and colorful and accurate about things like sin and grace. So if, you were, if, you've, ever, if you've ever shopped for a diamond, you know that a, a wise jeweler will lay out a black velvet underneath the diamond in order to show the glory of the diamond for what it really is. He doesn't just lay it out on the glass. He lays it out on a black velvet on purpose. And the contrast shows us how beautiful the diamond is. God does this. He does this in four specific areas. I'm going to give you a little memory aid so that you can recall these four areas without having any notes. I know that's crazy for our culture. We've got to write everything down. But Ron and his studies of the ancient Near Eastern uh, history has helped us on staff specifically say, no, put your pen down, use your mind. And hopefully this will help a little bit. In order to prove that a diamond is what the jeweler claims it is, you need a certificate from the Gemological Institute of America, the GIA. So I want you to think certificate to prove that a diamond is legitimate and shorten it up to CERT, C-E-R-T, Colossians, Ephesians, Romans, and Titus, CERT. And then you just add on three numbers, one, two, and three. CERT, one, two, three. Colossians, one, Ephesians, two, Romans, and Titus, three. Hopefully you can remember this for uh, the future, for your own recollection of the darkness of your own sin and the uh, contrasting beauty of God's grace. 
The black velvet is indeed how black our sin is. The diamond is indeed God's beautiful grace. You don't necessarily need to remember, unless you want to, the verses, because it gets colorful, again, in how bad we are. So you can see it just by glimpsing at Colossians 1. I'm only going to reference a few verses there, and they'll be longer in the other texts. But let's look at Colossians 1. Verse 21 through 22. I'm going to move pretty quickly through these. Hopefully it'll be behind me on the screen. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you, blackness of our sin, think that here, velvet. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's not flattering. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians 1. Look for the turn in each of these, from the darkness of the velvet of our sin to the brightness and beauty of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, Pour it on here, Paul, like the rest of mankind, but, Jerry Bridges in his book called Transforming Grace calls this God's wonderful but. We need that but. If it doesn't happen, we're in trouble. But, it says, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Colossians 1, Ephesians 2, Romans and Titus 3. Let's look at Romans 3. Starts in verse 10. Again, if you don't recall the verses in the memory, that's okay. Because a quick scan of Romans 3, you'll find, whoa, it's bad there. And wow, it gets pretty good there. So it's easy to find where you're looking for. This is not just easy for you to recall and remember, it's easy for you to help others do that as well. So Romans 3 verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is bad news. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is indeed Good. Last one, Titus 3. Colossians 1, Ephesians 2, Romans and Titus 3. Starts in verse 3. Again, it's dark. And it's bad news. 
we ourselves, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to hope of eternal life. So if you use CERT 123 as a reminder, and you synthesize it a little bit, this is what it sounds like, the dark and natural posture of our sinful hearts that we must continually remember and recognize include things like alienation, separation from, and hostility toward God, doing good deeds that are at the core evil in nature, I'm spiritually dead, I follow the world and sin, following the devil and his purposes, following the passions of my flesh. In other words, I'm a son of disobedience, child of wrath, deserving God's wrath, not righteous, not understanding, worthless, unable to do good, with a mouthful of deceit and deadly poison, foolish, disobedient, astray, a slave to sinful passions and pleasures that spends his time in malice and envy, hating each other and being hated by others. We should be able to remember that. We should be able to recall that. We should use God's word to help us remember that. The challenge from these kinds of dark truths about who we once were and who, and, and even the flesh that still lingers in us is that when we examine ourselves, we must find it lingering and this presence of guilt-inducing, morally polluted, sinful flesh. Does this mean recall specific, recalling specific sins? I think it does, but it means more than that. And it, it, means, it means recalling that if, if, not, if we just recall our regular sins, our, our everyday sins, then we get too petty in the behavior. We want to recall the nature that is bent against God. And that if God were to leave us in it, we would be doomed for an eternity without him in conscious torment. But we should long for the wonderfully glorious but that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 and Romans Titus 3, and is implied in Colossians 1. We have not been left to our sinful nature. God has, in his mercy, sent Christ on a rescue mission to save us from ourselves, from this corporate and personal sinful rebellion against him. And after the turn, the but in each text, we should see the beauty and the brightness. It should be blinding to us, the glory that God has for us in Christ when we recall what happened 2,000 years ago and that it doesn't have to happen again tonight. We're just here to remember it, but we have to be purposeful about remembering it. We've got to see things in the text after we've turned the corner that we've been reconciled, we've been made holy and blameless before God. We are loved through mercy. We're made alive in Christ, saved, raised up, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. We're made righteous We've been justified. We've been redeemed. We are saved, rescued, not because of obedience, but because of God's mercy through our faithful trust in Christ. 
Paul calls us regenerated or remade and renewed by the Holy Spirit and even calls us heirs of God as we look forward, hopefully, to eternal life. The challenge of these positive or good news truths about the glorious diamond of God's grace is that when we examine ourselves and find ourselves still in need of this amazing grace, we look to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We have that promise. We have the promise of grace in Christ through faith. So we come to the Lord's Supper tonight to remember this finished work of Christ to redeem us from this wickedness, both corporate and personal, that was directly against him and his rule and his love and his design for our lives. And as we're faithful to examine ourselves before we partake tonight, we should find ourselves unworthy of his love and needing grace. And this should lead to humility, unlike the church in Corinth. And I have this hunch that it hasn't manifested itself in, in the same ways among us as it has the Corinthian church because of the faithful reminder we get from guys like Ryan. Imagine if, hopefully, hopefully the Corinthian church took that letter and said, I need to read this pretty often, especially the whole Lord's Supper part, because this is getting out of hand. So I'm thankful for Ryan and his faithfulness to get up here and challenge us to examine ourselves And my hope is that you will use the Cert 1, 2, 3, Colossians 1, Ephesians 2, Romans and Titus 3 to remind yourself of the darkness of your own sin and the glorious, blinding greatness of God's grace toward you and that you will use it to help summarize that for others as well. Let's take a time and pray now. God, I think think I'm uh, close being right in that if, if the folks here are anything like me, then um, the bad news of, of, of my sin and uh, my nature against you uh, becomes assumed and presumed in our relationship, God, my relationship with you. And uh, I'm sure it does here as well. And God, I know that I need to see that. I need to remember that because that was worth you sending Jesus to the cross for. It was that bad, and he was that capable of dealing with it on the cross. So thank you, God, for sending Jesus to the cross for me, sending Jesus to the cross for us, his people, for those that have turned away from sin and turned toward you in faith. Pray that if there are those who have not yet, they would come to the point where trust and turning away from self and sin and Trusting in you would be what is next, would be what they feel, would be what they believe. And for us, your people, that we would more and more remember this on a regular basis as we do corporately today. God, we pray these things in our crucified Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, just a few instructions. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, talking about Christ, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his body we were healed. 1 Peter 3.18 says, 
Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and raised to life by the Spirit. If you believe this, if you've come to believe this many years ago or even recently, this meal is for you. If you've put your trust in the crucified Savior Jesus to reconcile you back to God, this meal is for you. If you haven't come to that point, I would encourage you to just stay seated tonight and watch as others partake. This is kind of a family meal, as Ryan likes to say. And if you're in the family, that means you've turned from your sin, repented, trusted in Jesus, and are continually wanting to be reminded in these ways that Jesus was broken in body and and bled to save us.